Welcome to today's program. My name is Glenn Deason. I'm a professor of political science. Uh, with me is Alexander Mercurius from the excellent Duran. And today we're speaking with Professor uh, Jeffrey Sachs, an economist who advised several countries transitioning to capitalism, including Poland, the Soviet Union, and then Russia. In fact, uh, Jeffrey Sachs was there uh, if I'm not mistaken, across from the table of Yeltsin when he announced the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, so, yeah, welcome back, uh, Professor Sachs. It's uh, good to see you again. Great to be with you, Glenn, and, and Alexander. Terrific. Um, so uh, today we want to discuss this uh, economic war between China and the United States. Uh because um, a key challenge for the U.S., uh, well, in my opinion, at least, is it committed itself to a hegemonic strategy in which stability and peace is believed to necessitate the endurance of uh, hegemony in perpetuity. So uh, this creates certain problems when other centers of power rise, as there's little scope for accommodating the rise of other countries, at least as equals. So the rise of China is currently, I guess, the most relevant example as uh, its mere rise undermines the U.S.-led order. So we therefore see this very fierce economic war uh, with the explicit goal of slowing down or even scaling back China's economic development. Uh, however, uh, as you have pointed out in an article, uh, this also applies to allies. Uh, you wrote this article the comparing, com sorry, comparing the U.S. economic war against China with uh, the economic uh, strike, if you will, against Japan in the 1980s. So at that time, uh, as we remember, J Japanese were becoming, as you phrased it, too successful and had to be taken down a peg. Uh, I was wondering if you could uh, uh, explain or elaborate on your arguments. Th thanks a lot. I, I think the starting point is uh, an ideology which is uh, inconsistent with reality, and that is uh, the idea of uh, being a, a global hegemon. Uh, there really have not been global hegemons uh, in human history, and I don't think there will be because there will always be multiple power centers and economic centers, and no uh, one country can maintain a, a dominance uh, at a global scale uh, for very long. Now, the U.S. Uh, inherited this ideology from Britain, which did have a, a kind of global dominance in the 19th century because it was the first one to get to the steam engine. It was the first one to industrialize. And that did give Britain uh, a tremendous advantage over rivals for the 19th century and uh, the early 20th century. But even then, rivals arose, of course, Germany uh, and uh, and the United States. And um, uh, in Asia, the industrialization of, of Japan. Well, there's a lot of history there. But just to say, after two world wars and the Great Depression in between, and the fact that the United States uh, was pretty much a uh, uh, immune from uh, the physical uh, war uh, of the Second World War, other than one day uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, the U.S. emerged at the end of 1945 as uh, a remarkably dominant country temporarily. It had uh, the atomic bomb. It had a vast industry. It really was way ahead in technology, in part because uh, so many of uh, Europe's top technologists, scientists, and engineers had fled Hitler and had come to the United States. And so the U.S. Uh, really uh, looked at itself and said, well, now we run the world. And that became the core of uh, U.S. Uh, political strategy, statecraft, grand strategy, if you want to call it that, and ideology. And we know throughout history, whenever a country finds itself uh, in that situation, which happens uh, uh, occasionally, um, you believe that that's a divine providence. Uh, and there was uh, definitely a civic, religious, and even straightforward evangelical religious uh, impulse to this uh, idea that America is the chosen country to run the world. 
And uh, Henry Luce uh, did a trick on the United States, of course, the editor of uh, Time magazine in the 1940s when he proclaimed the American century. Uh, that can also go to your head. Uh, and that went to uh, the, the head of uh, America's leaders. This is our century. Of course, uh, soon enough, the United States decided that it was contending with the uh, uh, a rival, the Soviet Union, uh, and the Cold War was this uh, grand rivalry uh, in systems, uh, as it was supposed. Uh, even that uh, really requires careful historical dissection because the Cold War itself, in my view, could have been uh, ended uh, or avoided entirely uh, had the U.S. chosen a different strategy in Europe, uh, one based on Germany's neutrality rather than rebuilding Germany's military after World War II, at least the Western uh, controlled part of Germany. That's a little bit of a digression, but just to say the United States competed with the Soviet Union and at the end of the Soviet Union and with the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, this seemed to be the moment, uh, the full realization of this dream of uh, deliverance, uh, global peace under the U.S. Uh, hegemon, just a little bit of cleaning up to do, uh, but the U.S. would uh, run the show. And that became, you could say, the state religion. It became the foreign policy uh, firmed up doctrine. We call it uh, the, the neocons, but it's a part of a continuity of kind of self-glorification of the United States that stretches back earlier. But in 1992, it seemed the United States was without a rival. Uh, it just had a cleaning up operation to do. And the cleaning up operation was a rather a self-conscious one, which is uh, there are still remnants of Soviet allies around uh, Saddam Hussein uh, or uh, uh, Hafez al-Assad uh, in Syria uh, and later his son. Uh, and uh, there was still the influence of, uh, uh, of Russia in its uh, near neighborhood, but that also could be uh, undone. Uh, China was hardly on the radar screen. It was still perceived as a, uh, uh, as a nation of uh, rice-growing villages. Uh, so the idea that China was going to somehow uh, become a, a, an industrial, technological, and military power was not imagined by the Americans uh, in 1992. Uh, so what I uh, think we are observing is now the 30-year uh, uh, playing out of a U.S. vision, which was extraordinarily naive, uh, obnoxious in many ways. But the idea was now we have reached hegemony. Uh, we can put our military bases where we want. We can expand our military alliances where we want. We can clean up those remnant uh, Soviet or Russian uh, regimes by overthrowing uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria or getting rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq uh, or overthrowing Gaddafi uh, in Libya. Uh, we can uh, make sure that we have uh, friendly, uh, even suppliant uh, regimes throughout Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And we can just keep encroaching. And it was even a project it remains to this day a project of some to uh, basically break Russia apart the same way that uh, the Soviet Union had broken apart. So there is an active project with many uh, U.S. political leaders to so-called decolonize Russia. Uh, and that is not even a hidden agenda. That's actually an explicit agenda of U.S. government-backed agencies. So this kind of arrogance brings us to today. Now, the final point I would make just as an introduction is the United States is 4.1% of the world population. It's not very much, 
actually, we're 335 million people in an 8 billion world economy. There is no monopoly of talent, of scientific knowledge, of technological expertise at all. And science and technology has now spread throughout the world. And what made the United States unique in 1945 as undamaged domestically by the war and indeed propelled by World War II to military, industrial, and technological might doesn't apply any longer. So during this period, there has been the spread of knowledge, technology, and remarkably innovation capacity itself from China, which really was a nation of villages by uh, the uh, time of the founding of the People's Republic of China after a century of, uh, uh, of uh, disasters for China. Now China's a, a superpower, clearly. Uh, and all of this idea that the United States stands alone astride the world was always arrogant and naive, but now it's just utterly and painfully anachronistic. But they don't get it in Washington. They don't get it in the think tanks funded by the military-industrial complex. They don't get it in the universities where I teach in the East Coast of the United States, where the idea of U.S. hard and soft power still being dominant uh, is the everyday discussion. Uh, or they know something's not right. It's very worrisome, but we've got to take steps to make sure that that uh, dominance, uh, sometimes called full spectrum dominance, meaning economic, financial, technological, and military, is maintained. It can't be maintained. Uh, one has finally to learn to live together with others. Uh, and this is uh, the great lesson of socialization that four and five-year-olds go through and that the United States government's going to have to go through. But uh, it's a, a very painful process. It's like really saying to the child, you know, play together nicely with Johnny. Uh, don't uh, insult Johnny uh, at uh, each time. Go make up to him. Uh, share the sandbox. And this is really the stage that we're at. Sometimes I do find it uh, almost like watching five-year-olds. And my wife tells me, don't insult five-year-olds. They're better than this. Uh, but uh, this is uh, almost what it's like right now. And uh, the U.S. has not quite woken up to this. And the Ukraine war is uh, is really a watershed uh, in this way because uh, it is, even though the United States has repeatedly been uh, defeated uh, in Vietnam, uh, in in uh, the debacles in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, in the complete mess created in Syria and Libya, I mean, none of this has worked. But it's never been because of this very strong opponent that says no, and Russia saying no right now, and the rest of the world is saying, yeah, you know, back off because we don't want uh, a U.S. hegemonic world. We want a multipolar world. And so this really is a different kind of wake-up call, in my view. Professor Sachs, just, just a few things, and I, I'm going to go over to, to Glenn, but just a few, two, two quick observations. I just wanted to mention, because I obviously live in Britain, and about the United States inheriting ideas from Britain in the 19th century. Not only is this actually true, but it was actually intended. It was something that actually happened quite consciously at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. The British, this is well-established academic history, I should make clear. The British, from having been very, very wary of the United States in the mid-19th century, and even hostile towards it to, to a great degree, when they began to become conscious that their power was starting to wane, they looked for the other 
English-speaking country that would take, uh, you know, take the, you know, the, the flame, the weight from them and would, in effect, continue the project. And in fact, there was a well-known speech that Joseph Chamberlain, who was the colonial secretary at the time, uh, father of Neville, by the way, he actually said the weary titan staggers unto the, under the too vast orb of its fate. And he invited other countries. He meant the dominions, the, the British dominions, but he also, of course, meant the United States to, to start helping Britain with that particular burden. It is a long topic, a very, very yeah. long topic, and it, but it's something that people perhaps are not aware of the extent that they ought to be. And of course, uh, in uh, perhaps the Churchill's most famous speech, he says, until the time that the new world comes to rescue uh, the old world uh, in, in uh, the outbreak of uh, World War II. So looking to the United States uh, as uh, uh, ultimately the military and industrial force that would come to rescue uh, the British Empire. Indeed, and he always spoke about, Churchill always spoke about the English-speaking people, and he even wrote a history about the history of the English-speaking people. So anyway, that, that's... that's, that's the I part. think, by the way, just to say that is so uh, important because the English-speaking yeah. people is now the five eyes. Uh, it's now the intelligence uh, yeah. system uh, of uh, Britain, uh, the or United Kingdom, uh, U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. So it's formalized into a, a formal security structure uh, in uh, as the English-speaking peoples. That's what it's become is a security Absolutely. structure. Absolutely. One shouldn't just blame the British because, of course, there was on the other side in the United States, there were all kinds of people who were very interested and receptive in these ideas. But Absolutely. Just to say, this isn't a... This isn't just chance that things turned out that way. Now, the other thing that I, I was thinking, I was listening to all that you were saying. And of course, just before we started this program, I was reading a speech that Secretary Blinken has just given at John Hopkins University. Most interesting speech, because, of course, he says in some respects, many of the same things that you are saying, though, of course, from a completely different perspective. He says that we had this wonderful period after the end of the Cold War, when everything had become sorted out, the liberal order seemed secure, everything was moving forward in a very good way. Of course, there were some you know, problems. We had a war in Yugoslavia, we had a financial crisis in 2008, but these are just wrinkles in, in the wonderful situation that we were in. And unfortunately, sadly, tragically, now it's no longer the case any longer. We have this league of autocracies who are working together to defy us. And he made it very clear which of those countries is the great adversary. He actually stated China is the great challenge because they can compete with us in politics, economics, in every field. And of course, the very interesting thing is the rest of his speech is not about coming to terms with that fact. It is about the United States working to, to push this challenge back, to defeat it, to somehow restore that period of unchallenged dominance which it had just lost. And it's a, it's a, it was a, both in some ways a very pessimistic speech because he understands that this unipolar moment has gone. In fact, he's all but saying it. But he's completely unreconciled to the fact of its passing and is looking for ways to reverse it. And, of course, he singles out China. China is now the great adversary. Of course, the Russians are causing all kinds of problems, but they are essentially an auxiliary to the Chinese who are leading the autocracies around the world. And he complains that many countries are hedging, that they're no longer lining up with the West. Some of them are hedging. They're thinking about moving to the side of the autocracies. And he talks about corporations and NGOs and other things 
other people, other entities doing the same thing. So it's exactly in some ways he recognizes the change that you're talking about. But and this is the dangerous thing. He wants to reverse it and he wants to reverse it by essentially going after China. It's, of, of course, uh, um, very dangerous uh, and it could mean uh, a war over Taiwan, for example, exactly uh, provoked in the way that the war in Ukraine was provoked. Uh, the U.S. political class really believes that uh, pouring in arms to Taiwan somehow protects Taiwan rather than exactly making it vulnerable to the Ukraine syndrome, which is to get destroyed because of a uh, great power competition. And of course, the Ukrainians uh, have their own responsibility in blundering horribly their way to this. But uh, this is a message I also uh, gave to Taiwan uh, when I was visiting recently, which is no amount of arms flows from the United States could make you safe, only the opposite. They will make you completely endangered in this fantasy of the U.S. And I think it's actually very interesting to take even a further conceptual step back because the rise of Britain in the 19th century, uh, the dominance of Europe, uh, can be seen even in a longer historical uh, wave that I think is is just worth mentioning. Uh, and that is that uh, if, if you go back to Adam Smith uh, and uh, my favorite passage of The Wealth of Nations, uh, written in 1776, uh, he has a paragraph that's uh, remarkably uh, humane uh, and remarkably uh, clever uh, where he says the two most significant events in the history of mankind uh, were the discovery of the Americas and of the sea route from Europe to Asia. So the first Columbus's uh, voyages uh, and then Vasco da Gama's voyages around the Cape of Good Hope. Uh, and he says these uh, have transformed the world. They've interconnected the world. Uh, and then in this uh, actually remarkable uh, paragraph uh, that people can find online, uh, he uh, says that a grave misfortune fell to the native inhabitants of the East and West Indies when these connections were first made because of the predominance of power of the Europeans over the native inhabitants. He doesn't actually recognize the, uh, the Europeans also brought pathogens, which wiped out uh, most of the indigenous population of the Americas. But he says someday, and by virtue of trade itself and how it will teach and spread technology, uh, those native inhabitants will rise in power until by their equality of force, they will be able to create a new justice in the world. And uh, what's amazing for me, looking back at this, uh, Smith wrote in 1776, he was talking about voyages uh, of uh, 1492 and 1498. And he said, we're just at the beginning of this. And eventually there's going to be an evening out of economic power. What we're seeing right now is not only the end of the U.S. Uh, self-proclaimed uh, hegemony, we're seeing the end of the North Atlantic dominance of the world, uh, which grew uh, slowly after those first voyages with the overseas empires in the 16th and 17th centuries, then picked up speed, uh, especially with the early industrialization and the, the industrialization of the military in Britain in the 19th century, then the United States in the 20th century. That now has spread to the world. So what Adam Smith uh, forecast uh, 250 years ago, which is that there will become an equality of force around the world. This is what we're seeing right now. Uh, we're seeing actually a, a world moving from a European-led world or a North Atlantic-led world to a, uh, a true multipolarity. And that 
uh, is not understood by Blinken or understood by these neocons or understood by the very shallow political class in Washington. I think it is pretty much understood, actually, uh, in Delhi. It's understood in Beijing. It's understood in Moscow. It's uh, understood in Brasilia. And it's uh, increasingly understood uh, now in Addis Ababa, home to the African Union, uh, though Africa was the most victimized continent uh, on the planet and the one that is uh, farthest behind, Africa's also now seeing a rise of technological capacity, uh, a unity that's coming consciously by recognizing we're the same size as India and China, and we need to start following that model of development as well uh, as uh, uh, China and India have forged. And so this multipolar world is really what's taking shape. Uh, and every day we hear about the global south and so forth, uh, an expression I really don't like, but I don't have a better one yet. We uh, To say the non-Western world is really what's uh, the closest description or the non-North Atlantic world. But that's the world that's taking shape right now. But it's dangerous because... Uh, in history, every major shift of power such as this has been occasioned by war, uh, often uh, massive and pervasive war. None, of course, by definition, has ever occurred during the nuclear age uh, and um, with, with a lot of uh, not very clever people uh, uh, at the helm uh, and... Um, it's an extraordinarily dangerous period, actually. I don't think that there's uh, any any denying that. I guess one could almost excuse the <clears throat> the powerful ideology, though, because, uh, yeah, as you pointed out, the whole uh, interconnectivity of the world, effectively the shaping of a common world order, it all happened under the last 500 years of Western dominance. And uh, I also remember the end of the Cold War when you had, uh, well, in, in 1989, we had... Uh, uh, George Bush making the argument that, you know, we, we shouldn't dance on the Berlin Wall because, you know, this was a common peace. We negotiated together. There's no victor. There's no loser. It's a common peace. And then two years later, the Soviet Union collapses. And within a month, he was given... And the, the dance the, begins. Yeah. One month later, he gave the speech, the uh, State of the Union speech in January of 92, where the rhetoric was very different. Now it's... Ah, the, the Cold War didn't end. It was won. Uh, the leader of the West is now the leader of the world. And this is kind of, you felt the hubris <laughs> in the, you know, through the cameras almost. And, but, but, but uh, even though uh, it was still reasons for optimism, I think, over the next, uh, despite all the wars and the idea that, you know, the world would be more integrated and stable. But, uh, uh, but over the past few years, when suddenly what uh, was prophesied by Adam Smith, the, the power starts to disperse. Which, by the way, George Kennan also said that after World War II, he almost exactly like you, he said, you know, we're 4% of the world population, got 50% of the GDP, this is going to last. Uh, anyways, uh, over the past few years, uh, the powers began to disperse. And uh, just to summarize the idea or the concern, uh, there's a book by one of the main uh, neocons, Robert Kagan, which probably wants, no, yeah, Related or in family with Victoria Newland. Well, uh, but this is amazing. The husband of uh, Victoria Newland. Yeah. Uh, he's the he, he's uh, the ideologue, uh, uh, at, at least the uh, the writer uh, of the screeds uh, on uh, uh, the uh, liberal hegemony. Not so liberal, but uh, in any way, uh, the, the the desirability of the hegemony. And and his wife has been the point person uh, putting this into place uh, st step by step in, in this horribly destructive way. But the mentality of just of the title of his book, I thought was uh, very revealing because it's, uh, you know, the jungles growing back. This was the idea where he used the oriental language of the garden versus the jungle because, you know, uh, civility was spreading around the world under U.S., United States, and suddenly now the jungle is growing back. So, and uh, the European Union also used the same language, uh, you know, the, the garden and the jungle. So the jungle is invading us unless we go out now in the jungle. So 
We really by, by the way, when, when Joseph Borrell, uh, the uh, high representative of the European uh, Union, used that exact expression, uh, clearly uh, he was quoting either consciously or unconsciously uh, Kagan. Uh, and that's horrible. I mean, he was showing actually the insidious depth of this neocon ideology at the core of the European Commission. I was horrified. Of course, he was uh, he, he was called for it, but he wasn't called for it by people recognizing that it came from Kagan. He was called for it for its uh, uh, its its uh, implicit racism and so forth. But it was more than that. It was just the direct link of the Washington and the Brussels uh, neocons uh, with this idea uh, of uh, we control things and we need to control things uh, to keep uh, to keep the barbarians at, at bay. Uh yeah, so I, I wanted to shift more specifically to China because uh, in in your article you you write about what the U.S. did to Japan in the '80s, and of course this was different because Japan was a well was still is a, a dependent on security from the United States, so it was easier to I guess strong arm them to uh, to alter their currency. Uh, uh, open up their patents of their semiconductors, uh, you know, putting the tariffs against them. But of course, China is a somewhat different animal. It's a, a huge uh, yeah, the economic technological power is uh, quite immense, and also it's not dependent on the United States for security. So it has greater autonomy. I was wondering how how do you see the possible success of the United States to uh, roll back the development of China? Because there has been efforts. I, I, I think uh, that Huawei gave a good answer to this a couple of weeks ago uh, because uh, the idea took hold in Washington in recent years that the real chokehold for uh, the future world economy is uh, seven nanometer chips uh, or uh, the uh, uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography uh, and uh, that there would be uh, Western dominance because of a technology that China could never, uh, never achieve, that it would always be years behind. Now, as a general proposition, I, I just recalled as I heard this, how wrong such a prediction has repeatedly been because there is no monopoly on scientific skill. There is no monopoly on technology. Technology spreads. It does get uh, reverse engineered. It does get copied. It does get stolen, by the way, in all directions. So this is not, not uh, one way or another. Uh, and the idea that you keep the technological lead is uh, always a, a naive idea. At the end of uh, World War II, there was a a debate where the scientists that were uh, at Los Alamos uh, and had developed uh, the atomic bomb sensed we should share this now with the Soviet Union. We should bring this under international control. Uh, and uh, the uh, powers that be uh, in Washington in, in the uh, early Truman administration decided, no, it's going to take the Soviet Union 30 years to develop an atomic bomb. Uh, there's just no way they're going to be able to do it. Uh, of course, a few years later, this was completely disproved. And then uh, with the thermonuclear bomb, uh, the fusion uh, hydrogen bomb, this was uh, also uh, almost an immediate uh, uh, replication uh, in the Soviet Union. So the idea that you keep this uh, technological lead and there are these great chokeholds uh, of technology is just at, at the gut. I doubted it. But then Huawei came along a couple of weeks ago and said, oh, this wonderful chip, this uh, A100 NVIDIA chip, which is uh, the, the key uh, graphic processing unit chip for artificial intelligence, large language models, uh, and supposedly uh, military applications and so forth. Well, Huawei just put it in its uh, new phone. <laughs> so something, not not that chip, but a Chinese-made chip that has uh, this uh, 
tremendous capacity. I think uh, everyone's still scrambling to figure out exactly what is in that phone, but it uh, seems to be uh, holding up to scrutiny that uh, this has been a, a, a rapid advance. And if this is not the definitive proof of that, there will be another one soon and another one after that and another one after that. The idea that the United States is going to uh, stop China's progress this way is hugely uh, doubtful uh, and uh, not not only morally wrong uh, and dangerous because it's so directly provocative uh, and uh, so directly in violation of any norm of uh, uh, of uh, interstate relations other than overt conflict. Uh, but it's also extremely naive uh, to believe that uh, this secret uh, is uh, held by the U.S. and can never be replicated. And so I think that uh, with Japan, uh, just to go back to the analogy, Japan also made uh, terrific advances uh, in semiconductors, uh, in uh, DRAMs at the time, and uh, uh, memory chips and flash uh, chips and so forth. And the United States uh, said, well, we've got to stop this. Japan was more compliant in the U.S. pressures because Japan is much more vulnerable than China to such pressures. Uh, Japan, after all, felt itself, interprets itself as being under the U.S. security umbrella. I think it's a mistake, by the way, uh, the way that Japan views this, uh, because, well, I'll come to that in just one moment. But in any event, Japan al allowed its growth to be basically dialed dramatically down uh, at the end of the 1980s by accepting a vastly overvalued currency as, as part of a political deal, by accepting voluntary export constraints as a political deal, and by not having any alternatives also because the U.S. was Japan's market. When it comes to China, China doesn't accept, of course, a subservient role to U.S. security. China's not going to agree to the such measures. And China's busy forging actively a, a, a large part of the world in which the U.S. can't hold sway or can't have a veto. And that's what the BRICS is about. Uh, that's what the BRICS enlargement is about. That's what uh, this uh, diplomacy is about. China saying, no, you know, th there's a big world. We've got major trading partners in every region of the world. Uh, we have our own domestic technologies. We don't accept being shut down by the United States. Many other things could be uh, could be said about this. Uh, um, but one small point I would make is that the macroeconomic advice, my profession, uh, that uh, is given now to China is all wrong, uh, which is uh, the U.S. says, stop exporting, stop trying to do all these things, just consume. Uh, and uh, China should not follow such advice. China should be uh, exporting and investing and still building its economy and its capacity and not uh, uh, going to a slow growth consumption economy. China still has a lot of development ahead and it should see if the U.S. market is going to be closed in effect, uh, it should continue to actively export to the rest of the world mm -hmm. because it's got world competitive, low cost, high quality technologies that the rest of the world needs for its development. So in my view, there are decades ahead of China's growth by being engaged actively in trade and investment throughout Africa, throughout Latin America, throughout uh, Southeast Asia. And I don't see the U.S. in any position to stop that. I think I, I, I would just wanted to, to add to all of that, that this idea of trying to restrict technology and the diffusion of technology is a good thing. It should be seen as a good thing. It should not uh, be seen course. as a bad thing. I mean, trying to prevent other countries from developing their um, technology, their own, uh, is in effect a sacrifice 
um, well-being, not just their well-being, ultimately your well-being also, in order to achieve an ephemeral power position, because that's what it that's what it amounts to. And firstly, it is not going to work for precisely the reason that you said. It, you cannot now simply prevent people thinking, which is how technology eventually comes. I mean, people, if they have to produce a chip, they will sit down and they will think it through. And people can think in China just as they can think in the United States and they can think in India and they can think in every country. You will find people who have the means to do that. And where the thinking exists, eventually the resources will follow. But what you will actually do is you're not going to prevent technology being developed in other places, but you will interfere with trade flows, with the movement of goods and people and supplies and things like that. And you will cause political divisions in the world, which will make yourself, the United States, a less prosperous and happy country than it might have been. But it's also going to have a knock-on effect on everyone else too. And um, we, we we did a program, um, yourself and us, on the Duran, in which Alex and myself on the Duran, which we talked about the fact that the Chinese economy is slowing, and it is slowing, and it's partly slowing because all of these restrictions are being created. And that isn't helping the United States. It's making situations in the United States itself bad because the United States benefits from good trade with China and with the rest of the world. This is exactly right. And it is fascinating for me uh, uh, watching kind of the mindset issue. There are two very different mindsets uh, that are in play. And as an economist and uh, the part of Adam Smith that I love, Adam Smith was a uh, believer that uh, an, an open world would be a prosperous world. Uh, and uh, he described for the first time in scientific terms the idea of a global division of labor, of the innovation that results from this and so forth. Not exactly in modern terms, but uh, rather remarkable uh, insights in the wealth of nations. And the idea is trade is mutually beneficial. That's the that that's uh, the mother's milk of, uh, of economics in this way. The trade is not one wins, the other loses, but trade is mutually beneficial and an, an open world is beneficial for the world. Then there's the other mindset is who's number one and who is subordinate. Uh, and this is a lot of statecraft. Uh, and uh, our dear friend, uh, and I admire him enormously, uh, John Mearsheimer, uh, very brilliant uh, and uh, very accurate and very careful, views the world as a, as a tragedy of great powers. Uh, this is his greatest book, uh, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. And for him, it's a tragedy because there's a struggle to be number one. And that struggle is inevitable because everybody's fighting for survival. Uh, and the fight is uh, because we're in the uh, state of nature at the global level. Uh, we're in a war of all against all. So uh, there's uh, anxiety, uncertainty, and struggle. And the question is, who's on top? And as an economist, uh, thinking about if people should have... <laughs> A decent life. People should have uh, the material means for their sustenance, uh, for their enjoyments, uh, and so forth. This idea of this endless struggle for who's number one mm. seems so mind-boggling. And, and I always say to John, uh, who's a close friend, and again, I'm we're all students of John Mearsheimer, John, we got to get beyond the tragedy part. You know, we can't accept the world as a tragedy. Uh, we have to uh, understand with all this uh, knowledge and technology, uh, we could actually have a, 
a, a peaceful and prosperous world. Well, maybe this is uh, the, the old philosophical uh, debates of the last 2,000 years. Is man fallen or not? Is there a way to uh, overcome the worst instincts? But the mindset is that trade is beneficial. We are not being hurt by China. We are actually being benefited by having a prosperous and dynamic and innovative China. And I firmly believe that to be the case. Uh, and uh, But this... If, if your issue is not your prosperity and your well-being, but your issue is being number one, then you do take a different point of view. And to my mind, it's a incredibly uh, defeating, dangerous, uh, self-defeating point of view to be obsessed with the question of who's number one when the question should be, how can there be shared prosperity and peace? Can I just make an observation? It's very interesting, by the way. But can I just make an observation about this, which is that I think this idea of intense interstate competition with a view to one country becoming ultimately dominant derives very much from European history, modern, modern European history, specifically the history in Europe from about the start of the 18th century, when you have a small number of European powers, great powers, in intense competition with each other. In fact, there was a, I, I haven't seen it around for ages, but there was a book that, you know, we always, all, all of us who were students of history in the, in the 1970s used to read at that time, which is actually, its title was by a man called James Joel, I seem to remember, called yeah. The Struggle for Mastery in Europe. And I remember that book. <laughs> now, I, I I have to say, I think this is, first of all, in the 19th century, there was actually some kind of an attempt to get away from that. There was an understanding that interstate competition between the great powers was de- was dangerous. And you had this attempt, which is not wholly unsuccessful, to un- to create the so-called concert of Europe, which did preserve a kind of peace through most of the 19th century, that in the 20th century, it all broke down. But it's still, I think, primarily a European phenomenon. It's it's because the European system became so dominant in the world, because the whole world, if you like, was drawn into the competition between the European powers, because Europe became so powerful in the 18th and 19th and 20th century. I, I think that it's perhaps unwise to think that this is how humanity must always be structured. Both Alexander, this is com- and after <laughs> this, this is completely correct and absolutely fascinating because I've been having uh, uh, very uh, intensive discussions with Chinese uh, colleagues, counterparts, uh, students, uh, and so forth about this issue. China's idea of statecraft, including international statecraft, really is different from the uh, Western view. And uh, for China, the idea of uh, this inevitable interstate conflict is not their history. Their history was large dynasties uh, that sometimes fell apart internally, but that was the tragedy that needed to be restored by unity. And the idea, even regionally, of course, was mostly the Middle Kingdom idea, which was, we don't need to go to war with our neighbors. Uh, We need a a system of uh, Peace, reciprocity, yes, hierarchy uh, in uh, the heyday of uh, the Ming and the Qing uh, dynasties, but not this interstate conflict. And I would say it goes back even before uh, the 18th century or the proverbial Westphalia settlement of 1648, uh, which is sometimes the date given for the uh, Western state system. But actually, I'd say all the way back to uh, the the Roman Empire and its uh, contemporary Han Empire in China. Both of them broke up, uh, but the Roman Empire was never reconstructed, uh, although there were 
claimants to try to reconstruct it, often extremely violent. But Europe never uh, established a, a European hegemon after the fall of uh, the Roman Empire. Of course, Rome also didn't control north of the Danube uh, and uh, uh, and east of the Rhine in Germania. But aside from that, there was a hegemon in Europe. And when the Western Roman Empire fell in 476, it was never reconstructed to this day. So interstate rivalry, uh, kingdoms, dukedoms, uh, and all of the complexities uh, of Europe and competing empires was the, this state of affairs. And after the Thirty Years' War and the emergence of international law and Grotius and others, the idea that there would inevitably be interstate rivalries and conflict was taken as normal. In Asia, in China in particular, this vast civilization, the Han Empire broke up. There were uh, centuries, uh, in fact, of uh, internal struggle among kingdoms and so forth. But then came long-lasting, unified dynasties, uh, the Song, the, the Tang Dynasty, the Song Dynasty, uh, the uh, Yuan Dynasty under the Mongols, the uh, Ming and the Qing Dynasties. And by and large, you know, summarizing uh, 1,500 years of history in two sentences, uh, there was a large uh, uh, aggregates, relatively centralized states, that uh, state that did not see interstate conflict as the definition of reality. And until today, I believe this is China's foreign policy outlook. What are you all fighting about all the time? Mm. China has never, to my knowledge, and I stand to be corrected, launched an overseas war. Uh, the only two cases I know of uh, are at the end of the 13th century when the Mongols were temporarily ruling China and they tried to invade Japan twice. But the Ming dynasty and the Qing dynasty for 700 years never tried to invade Japan, never once. Can you imagine China and Japan in a European context that we would have said 500 years of nonstop wars as occurred between Britain and France, for example? Endless war. But there wasn't endless war in, uh, in East Asia the same way. There was not endless war in East Asia the same way. And at the end of the 19th century, absolutely fascinatingly, Japan industrialized first uh, because of uh, revolutionary uh, changes taken in the so-called Meiji Restoration of uh, 1868. It became the early Asian industrializing power in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. And it was trying to tutor China into becoming an industrial nation. China was much more complicated and uh, lagging at the time and under tremendous internal and external threat and pressure. And uh, then Japan attacks China uh, in the uh, Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95. And the Chinese are aghast. What are you doing? We're trying to struggle against the, the Westerners. Uh, why are you attacking us? We're, we're Asian. And the answer the Japanese give, again, paraphrasing, is, oh, oh sorry, we're now one of them. Because we've industrialized. So now if you're industrial, you need empire. So, so sorry, we apologize to you. You taught us a lot of culture. Uh, you gave us our, uh, our alphabet. You gave us uh, uh, and so forth. But we're part of the Western club right now. And the Chinese are profoundly culturally taken aback and shocked and disappointed by this, uh, that Japan has become a Western imperialist country. And of course, this drama goes on because uh, Japan invades in the 1930s and horrific uh, bloodshed uh, and uh, the horrors of uh, the Pacific uh, War in the Second World War. But China's idea of statecraft is not go make colonies around the world Go spread your empire across the oceans. It never was that for 2,000 years. 
of course, we in the West, they, oh, no, 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 they want to take over the whole world. With what evidence? With no evidence, with no discussion, with no understanding, with no appreciation of Chinese history, none of it. That is, I think, the big problem. And that's a, a little bit where with John Mearsheimer, I'm trying to have this understanding and discussion because I'm saying that the tragedy of great power politics is a, it's a Western concept. Uh, it may be a Western reality, self-created, but it doesn't have to be our global reality. We don't have to succumb to tragedy. It's uh, interesting because uh, China, I guess, uh, what makes me optimistic is uh, its support for uh, multipolarity. Because sometimes I think about uh, Friedrich List because he was very enthusiastic about American industrial policy under the American system, simply because excessive dependence on Britain meant it wouldn't have its political autonomy. But again, he was a bit dismayed when he predicted that the US would not just develop economically for autonomy from British, but that it would become the future hegemon in the future. Uh, so this was uh, his concern. But uh, but it is interesting that China does not really resist or sabotage uh, other efforts by other countries to have uh, their own technological autonomy, their own uh, digital ecosystems. I see, for example, the relationship with uh, China and Russia. Russia is a bit apprehensive about, uh, uh, well, succumbing to a, a foreign hegemon. So they, but, but in any partnership, they are able to always get 51% in joint ventures, so they will have some autonomy simply to have that dispersal of power. Again, that was the Friedrich List's argument as well, which was uh, uh, ideally peace can be had when you had this dispersal of power, that one hegemon isn't able to create a, uh, ex exclusive dependence or excessive dependence to the extent that they can yeah, run like an empire. So. Uh, I, I guess that that is an interesting difference with China that they they haven't uh, at least to date uh, not pushed for empire. They have they consistently consistently called for economic uh, yeah, multipolarity, and even their civilizational initiative suggests that you know you will have a diversity of civilization, not struct structured by hierarchy. So it is. Uh, I think it's worth exploring if uh, China is different I, than the Europeans. I, uh, we need to explore it and we need not to succumb to the inevitability of conflict. And uh, again, with the, our dear friend, uh, John Mearsheimer, whom we all admire, I said to John, you know, the way we're treating China, we're going to make an enemy out of them. Absolutely. And he said, yes. And I said, John, why do we have to make an enemy? He said, that's the tragedy <laughs> that we will make an enemy out of them. So he's predictive. I'm trying to be normative that uh, this is not only not wise, uh, but also, in my view, not inevitable. We should be able to learn something. And since in China, it's not deeply ingrained the inevitability of tragedy of interstate politics, we ought to use that as a a cultural advantage for the world that maybe there is a way to have peaceful uh, multipolarity. I mean, in a way, we're talking about a scale problem. Uh, the scale problem in Western Europe, we hope, was solved uh, after World War II, after a thousand years of nonstop uh, interstate conflict. Maybe it would be better if we don't have conflict and we uh, share a common fate. We don't know if this will last, but it's a good idea. Could that same idea apply at the global scale? My argument is yes. Uh, it's only really two centuries that we've even thought about the concert of nations at a global scale. Uh, even the word international uh, was invented by Jeremy Bentham uh, only 225 years ago as a word, international. <laughs> Weird, but the whole idea of global cooperation is therefore, aside from the prophets uh, and the visionaries, uh, it's really only two centuries old. And in practical terms, it's one century. Uh, the failed League of Nations attempt, uh, the uh, United Nations after World War II, very fragile uh, and uh, obviously at a very fragile moment now. But it's a young idea whose time has come. Uh, 
because for all the reasons why we somehow mostly got over fighting within our neighborhoods, not everywhere and not all the time, and even got over fighting with neighbors uh, in a in a European Union and so forth, this is what has to apply at the global scale. And it is a, a difficult making. And the irony is we need global cooperation, but the world has really been forged in the image of European uh, nation states with the power. Uh, and so the power rests with uh, nation states, an odd word from a philosophical point of view, but state level uh, in a global system. Uh, and the question is whether these states can actually understand that a global committee of nations uh, uh, that is operating under some common standards, not regime change operations, not pushing your military alliance, not announcing the world is divided between us and them, which is all the U.S. imperial approach, whether the world could understand that true multipolarity is within reach and in everybody's common interest. Just, just a few quick things. Firstly, the struggle for mastery in Europe, I remember, is written by A.J.P. Taylor, whom I okay. was once privileged to be lectured by. So I, I've never forgotten him. But anyway, just just but knew knew that. I remember the title as a classic <laughs> of uh, reading a and uh, undergraduate. Uh, <laughs> I know. Anyway, just to say, I mean, the the other thing I would say about my own feeling, why I am actually, in general, optimistic is firstly, I, I don't think that this movement towards multipolarity and at the same time economic equalization around the world can be changed. I mean, what Smith was talking about, you know, all the way back in the 18th century, that, you know, eventually we will get to a position where there's a just division. I think that's if if you could see it that coming then we can certainly see it coming now. There's going to be a difficult period, but I don't think it can it can be resisted, and I don't think ultimately we're going to risk we're going to find ourselves in a great power war. The other thing is, if we're talking about the great powers, the problems between them are not so profound that they cannot be managed. I mean, China, India, they're not going to fight over, they're not going to get a war over a few hills in the Himalayas. I mean, it's not going to happen. Um, the Russians and the Chinese, they sorted out their problems. You know, things that people were saying were going to explode into war, they didn't. They sorted out their problems and everything settled down and was fine. We have major problems in Europe, but we brought about those problems, as even Professor Mearsheimer understands. I mean, it was Western policies that ultimately led to the crisis that we have in Europe. And different policies, if they're ever applied, they can sort those problems out. And, you know, we're not going to have conflicts between Russia and Brazil, or the United States doesn't need to have a conflict with Brazil. This, the conditions are there for a future concert of powers. There are always going to be conflicts and issues. I mean, history doesn't stop, but it doesn't need to evolve into a great power war. It's different from what it was like in Europe in the 19th century, when the great powers were also concentrated and interconnected with each other, that it required much more difficulty. It was much more difficult to maintain the balance and to maintain a kind of stability. And even then, for large, long periods of time in the 19th century, it worked. Today, it ought to be so much easier. That's that's what the, my last my last observation. <laughs> I want to say amen. I really hope you're right. Uh, uh, the only caution I I would have is that wars can uh, occur for no real reason at all, uh, and uh, this is the incredible uh, weird 
reality uh, of the world. That's why it's taken more than a century to uh, try to sort out. What, remind me, why exactly did World War I occur? Uh, it wasn't a, a moment of crisis in the world. Uh, in 1914, it wasn't a moment of destitution. It wasn't, a, it was a time of great progress, technological gain, scientific uh, knowledge. Of course, we can do the TikTok in the old sense of uh, the timing, the chronology of why the war occurred. Uh, why did uh, Kaiser uh, Wilhelm II really want a Navy to compete with uh, Britons? Bismarck told him, not a good idea. <laughs> the Kaiser said, what'll happen if uh, the, the British arrive with their Navy to our shores? And, uh, and uh, Bismarck famously said, I will have them arrested. You know, <laughs> we don't need a big Navy. But so stupid things are done by, uh, by stupid people. That's my only caution, because I think what you're saying is absolutely right. There are no fundamental reasons for conflict between the U.S. and China. I would say between Europe and Russia or between the U.S. and Russia. There's no deep reasons between China and India. We're talking uh, about psychological dynamics more than any real conflicts of interest. And you're completely right about that. The only caution is Norman Angel said the same thing uh, 110 years ago in the illusions of war. He said, there's no reason for war. It can't bring about anything good. It, there's no advantage to it. Uh, and then came World War I. So this is the, for me, the, the single biggest bottom line, stop the warmongering, end the war in Ukraine at the negotiating table. Now it was based on politics, just like von Clausewitz always said, the war in Ukraine is politics uh, with other means. Uh, it is about the politics of NATO enlargement. The United States has to stop this give some space to Russia. Russia has to stop this and give some space to Ukraine to exist as a sovereign nation. Nobody can dispute that that's fundamentally possible and beneficial. And the United States needs to back off over Taiwan and respect the one China policy. And then we can get on to actually having a decent world. Professor Sachs, that's, that's, uh, I, I just wanted to say thank you again for an amazing program. Glenn, any... Len? No, uh, thank you as well. Uh, sorry for going a bit over time, but... Uh, no, pleasure uh, to be with you guys <laughs> and uh, look forward to the next time. Great. Great. Th thanks a lot.